What's up, fight fan? You're listening to MMA Daily, the podcast where we bring you the latest in the world of mixed martial arts. It is Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. This week's episode, The Light at the End of the Tunnel. We'll be talking about UFC 256, what's next for the flyweight championship and the lightweight division. We're talking about the latest in MMA news, Anthony Johnson and Yoel Romero going to Bellator, a new flyweight champion in Juliana Velasquez, and we'll close it out looking ahead to this Saturday's fight, the final UFC event of the year featuring Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Jeff Neal. My name is Gabriel Gonzalez. Natalie is not here this week, guys. She had something come up, but one of my friends kindly agreed to step in and keep me company. Um, No exaggeration, I can think of very, very few members of the media in our business whom I respect more for their skills, their dedication, just their overall just um, presentation of themselves. It is Farah Hanoon. You've seen her for MMA Junkie, and she was the UFC correspondent on Fight Island. Farah, how are you doing? It is so great to talk to you again. Hey, I'm doing good. I appreciate the introduction, (laughs) and I appreciate you having me on. So, for fans who maybe remember, you were on my YouTube channel. We discussed UFC 254. I forgot the number there for a second. Habib versus Gaethje. Um, You know what? Fight Island. It was a crazy experience. You were there longer than I was, but... Just what have you been up to since then? Because we've seen you on MMA Junkie. You're clearly busy. But just what's new since uh, you left Abu Dhabi? Yeah, just that. Uh, writing, trying to do a bit of uh, interviews. Um, haven't been doing as much as I wanted to, but just trying to um, get comfortable and get back to the swing of things. But yeah, I've been uh, just trying to get back to the usual regimen of at least getting a couple of interviews a week. I've actually only been doing one lately. I've just been really, really tired. I was feeling a little under the weather. But yes, just pretty much that, writing, uh, interviewing, uh, the usual. Well, I hope you are feeling a little better now. I mean, there's a lot of bugs going around, so definitely take care of yourself. For fans who don't know, and I feel like if you don't know this about her, you can't really appreciate just how much of an MVP Farah is. You, when you're doing these interviews that are posted at a lovely time for all of us Americans over here in the United States, you are conducting them from all the way over the world. Am I allowed to say, like, where you're from? Like, you, when we see you talking to Brian Ortega, Wonderboy Thompson, you are all the way in Egypt, and you're up in the middle of the night doing these video interviews. Do I have that correct? Yes, you do. (laughs) I mean, I am sorry, but like when I think about the dedication that a lot of us have, but still, when you automatically add the fact that it's always a graveyard shift for you, I always think it's like, you know what? People don't respect that enough because I think that kind of fact alone would probably terminate this job as an option for a lot of people. So I was like, you know what? That is just respect. I feel like you need to be praised every time for that, honestly. (laughs) I appreciate that. I mean, the the lack of sleep is hard to deal with. That's the thing. Like when I say I was under the weather, it was like I was just dealing with these really, really bad migraines. Uh, Like not sleeping well kind of messes with my day, getting up early in the morning to write and stuff like that. But hey, I picked this job. I love what I do. So no complaints for me. Hey, the game loves you back. Believe me, I think we've all seen that in your content. 
But I'm very excited. We got a lot of stuff to talk about with fights. It was a very fun Saturday night. Saturday morning, if I'm not mistaken for you. But the fact <laughs> is, it was a lot of good action. So let's start with the main event. Davison Figueredo, Brandon Moreno. Quite bluntly, I don't think when this fight was announced that anyone expected that they were going to go five rounds with that much back and forth action. I think that um, a lot of people were hopeful, but I, I'll be honest, I saw a quick finish either way. So the fact that they went back and forth was amazing. In terms of the fight itself, I was really impressed. Brandon's toughness, I think he had a great output throughout the fight. I think the thing that really just was his shining moment is that he did a fantastic job avoiding a lot of direct hits, a lot of shoulder rolls, a lot of movement. He did a good job not taking that direct power to the head from Figueredo pretty well throughout the fight. There were some pretty solid body shots, but I think the fact that uh, Moreno avoided taking too many of those devastating hits was a big reason why he was still in that fight late, you know, late into the championship rounds. Um, for Figueredo, um, his cardio. I really thought that the way he was throwing, he was going to slow down sooner rather than later. I felt like he was able to put up a great pace. We'll definitely talk about everything that came after the fact, the at the hospital till 2 a.m., the low blows, the points, all that uh, stuff. But for me, it's just the fact that Figueredo shot selection and everything it was pretty good throughout the fight and i think that was a big question we had considering his weight cut um farah what were your thoughts on the match yeah i was actually really impressed with both guys because i was kind of under the impression not gonna lie that it could have been a quick finish for figueredo but at the same time i knew that moreno's super tough and he's got a great chin uh there were questions of whether figueredo couldn't get before obviously we knew that he was sick but there were questions in my head if he didn't get a quick finish, if he'd have the cardio to go five rounds, if Moreno was going to take over in the latter rounds and whatnot. But I was actually impressed with both guys. I was impressed with, like you said, Moreno's output, his, his toughness. And at the same time, I was impressed that Figueredo was able to keep that gas tank. I did think he landed the more significant shots. Um, so even uh, re regardless of the low blow and the point taken away, I felt like Figueredo caused more damage than, than Moreno did, but uh, it was a great back-and-forth fight. I felt like I could watch those guys go at it all day. Super impressed with Brandon Moreno. I feel like it looks like the, a, a rematch is imminent, so I'd say going 25 minutes was super valuable, more for Brandon than it was for Davison, because Davison's going to bite down his mouthpiece. He's going to press forward. I think Brandon could take a ton away from the 25 minutes, and it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of adjustments he makes uh, going into the rematch. Figueredo says he had a stomach uh, infection, and he if he didn't, he would have put Brandon away uh, in the first round. I don't know um, if that would have been the case because Moreno's got a, a, a fantastic chin, and he's super tough as well, so he's not going to be easy to put away. Of course, there are submissions, which has got nothing to do with the chin and everything, but... But yeah, I, I was I was impressed with both guys. One issue I had, and I actually haven't rewatched the fight uh, since watching it live. I mean, like live as in when it was happening. Um, the commentary kind of irked me a little bit. Um, I felt like, you know, the thing is, I turn up the commentary pretty high because the fights are really late for me, and I need to stay awake and alert. Like I will never forgive myself if I ever 
uh, accidentally fall asleep in any of these fights. It will definitely not be because they're boring. It's just a little brutal to, to stay up until 8.30 a.m. So I kind of turn up the commentary quite high to make sure that any yell, <laughs> if I do fade for a second, that a, that a big scream by Joe Rogan or DC is going to wake me up. But I do feel like the commentary was a little over-embellished and it kind of didn't allow me to see what was actually a significant shot and what wasn't. Um, it, I wouldn't even necessarily say it was biased. Like the, the the narrative was a little bit forced. I don't know. Like I was, I remember being a little irked by the commentary during the fight. I just felt like I like, oh, this guy's hurt. He hurt him, or this guy's tired. I'm like, is Figueroa like, or, like uh, not tired? Like I can't remember. Like Figueroa was hurt. I felt like he was tired more than he was hurt. I don't know. Like I need to rewatch it and kind of focus more on the fight uh, because I felt like the commentary swayed a little bit of my thoughts while watching. Yeah, I think that they had, um, uh, I'll say it very bluntly, I feel like they were almost a little inspired by uh, the Tyson Jones commentary with Snoop Dogg. They were very off the cuff, and I just I, I just noticed there were just a lot more isms. There was a little less, um, I'll use the word decorum on Saturday's broadcast, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but during the fight, I did feel like it was... um. I get it. You're trying to almost tell the story a little bit, but I did feel like there was a little, um, uh, embellishment is a great word that you used. I felt like they were just, uh, you know, they're trying to sell a story and that sometimes happens. I don't think it's always, uh, you know, necessarily on purpose. I think that sometimes like we all do, they kind of go in expecting to tell a certain story of the fight as it plays out. And, they're not always the best at adjusting when they are surprised. And I think that that might just be what we heard. But I did, I was with you there. I felt like it wasn't um, all the way the best uh, representation of what was actually going on. Um, I want to talk about the scoring a little bit. Um, when it was over, the scorecards reflected exactly what I thought. It was either, in my opinion, a win for Figueredo, or if you gave those close rounds to Moreno it still adds up to just a draw. He didn't get the extra round necessary to take the decision. So when the scores played out majority draw, I felt like, yeah, that that kind of tracks. The one that I have heard about is the one judge that gave the fifth round to Moreno. That one I felel like was, you know, look, it wasn't a 10-8 a blowout, but I did feel like that was very solid for Davison at the end of it. But the fact is, you know, that, I'll say this, it, Had we gotten a decision for Figueredo, I don't know if we'd feel as excited about a rematch. It would be a great fight, but I feel like the fact that it was a draw for that reason kind of lends itself to the narrative now. Well, they definitely have to run it back. It was a draw. Whereas I felt like, you know, a close fight, but just Moreno did not get enough done. Uh, and then in terms of the point taken away, you know... Uh, It was significant. I understand the context of why they did it. I understand that it doesn't happen often in title fights. But I'll also go on the record to say that by the time you got done with the fifth round, I think that Moreno recovered pretty well and about as good as any fighter would have in the same situation. So in terms of the scoring, uh, they got it right. But at the same time, I don't know if that lends itself to the biggest rematch. Does that make sense? Yeah, honestly, I thought the point deduction was a little harsh. That's just my opinion. Like, usually they'll get a little bit of warnings. It was inadverted. Uh, I believe there was an eye poke before that as well. But I think the reason 
the referee felt like he wanted to deduct a point was Moreno's reaction, which, by the way, I'm not saying was was an overreaction uh, or acting by any means necessary on Moreno's part. I mean, I wouldn't even know what it's like to get uh, to feel like that, but. I feel like he felt kind of an obligation from that reaction. He was like the referee had to make had to make a decision. Like Jason Herzog had to make a decision on the spot. Seeing Moreno look compromised like that and not knowing how he's going to perform for the rest of the fight, he kind of felt the obligation to deduct a point. But in a championship fight, it's just tough uh, to, to deduct a point so fast like that. Like uh, it wasn't like the third warning for a low blow or something like that. You know what I mean? Like we've seen much worse. And, and referees kind of let it go. So I did feel like it was a little bit harsh, especially if the title ended up changing hands. Like, I'm sure Figueredo does not like that draw on his record at all, uh, being the dominant champion. Nobody's going to want to draw on their on their record, but being the dominant champion that he is, um, I, I, I'm sure he would have wanted a W on his record. One judge gave it to him. Have you not taken the point away? He would have won the fight. So... I just feel like it was a little bit harsh. I get where Jason Herzog is coming from. You see Moreno coughing up like that. You're kind of forced into making a decision, and you see him. You're wondering if he's compromised for the rest of the fight. Then you're going to feel bad that you didn't deduct the point. So he was in a tough spot. I'm just saying I wouldn't have. Uh, I felt like it was a little bit harsh, but at the same time, I'm not like completely outraged that he did it. Yeah, I think that that's another example. Um, look, those split-second decisions that the referee has to make in there, that's what leads to some questionable stoppages. Could they have gone a little longer? Should they have been stopped a little sooner? They have a very unenviable job is the point I'm trying to get across. But um, yeah, I'm with you there. You don't see it often. Moreno did have a reaction that looked like it warranted some kind of action taken, but... Yeah, the, the fact is, it doesn't happen often, especially in a big title fight. So, yeah, that just is what it is. There's a very human element when you're talking about a fight and, sorry, just a sport as dynamic as MMA. So, I agree with you. Um, in terms of that, I am not against a rematch. I think that it makes a lot of sense considering the flyweight division. What I will say is now you got a situation, um, the Cody Garbrandt thing, and I've said this on uh, previous episodes... I feel like we've reached a point where Cody is not as necessary to have a big fight at flyweight for Figueredo. He would still be the biggest fight, don't get me wrong, in terms of marketing and everything. But I almost feel like, and this has been changed because of the, you know, um, the loss of the Peter Jan Aljamain fight recently, is that I almost felt like had that fight, the Bantamweight title fight, happen, we could have easily seen Cody just choose to stay at 135 and probably fight for the title there, considering the state of the division at this time. So I still feel like the Cody Garbrandt fight isn't completely written off. I know that Dana was feeling the rematch after the fight, and um, a lot of people were. But I think that when you consider the division, the flyweight rematch makes sense because the only other guy Askar Askarov he's already booked in March to fight Joseph Benavidez I think that was a that's a big one set up to put him over get him into that elite shot and get that elite status on his name but for me I just have it 75-25 in terms of the rematch happening instead of uh, Cody Garbrandt getting the next shot what about you yeah I think like, Cody isn't healthy, so either way, if he's going to be out for a little bit, uh, I, I'm not quite sure how long. Um, it'll depend, I'm assuming, with the war they went through that they're going to want some time off, but 
We'll see how, I guess, 2021 plays out because sometimes the UFC is kind of scrambling for title fights. If certain, uh, like, it seems like we've got plenty uh, with Volkanovski Ortega and Miocha Chingano, uh, Burns and Usman. Like, we've got a lot of title fights coming up, but you never know sometimes they're trying to scramble for fights. So if they offer uh, that rematch for, for Moreno and Figueroa as soon as something like February, I wouldn't even be too shocked. And if they do that and Cody isn't even healthy yet, then it makes the decision easy. So I think timing is everything here. I wouldn't even be shocked if Cody was the priority here because he does have one of the bigger names. He does draw. He is a very easy, uh, especially if you're talking about the flyweights, even in the Bantamweights, he is an easy sell for a pay-per-view if you're putting a title fight. But then again, if you put uh, you know, Figueredo and, and Moreno, I don't know about the numbers and how they did, but they did headline the event. And UFC 256 was awesome. Like That was a great card. Um, but yeah, I guess sometimes the UFC can get lured with star power and, and what Cody brings. They can trash talk a little bit and everything can change. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it's, well, we're in COVID time, so maybe no run-ins, but sometimes a little back and forth on social media could spark and change everything. So I think timing is everything in this. I do think the intent right now from the UFC is to do an immediate rematch, but I wouldn't be totally shocked if they scrapped that and, and gave Cody the, the title shot, considering that he was... Uh, promised that and and um, Figueredo did retain I believe if Moreno had beat Figueredo after the point deduction then that would have almost guaranteed it because then there would be outrage and controversy had the point not been done but the fact that he retained makes me think that maybe it's not 100% set one note um, and I agree with you on the timing I think something to be said is that this fight essentially came together because they lost the Bantamweight fight with Pewter and uh, Aljamain and I bring that up because I think that so far, I don't know if they're necessarily sold on Figueredo headlining by himself. I will point out that there is a, also a reason why the Tony Ferguson fight did seem to get moved along in short notice. Usually a fight like that, you'd think there's more negotiation. They really accelerated that. And I think that is knowing potentially that, hey, you know, you do need to really bolster this card. We know Tony, you know, he's a guy who's carried pay-per-views before himself. So I think that that's a big point to make because if let's say there's a situation where, you know, if Figueredo's in a co-main event, you don't need the star power of Cody as much depending on the situation. Now, if we are talking about carry your own pay-per-view again, there are, you know, there are options on the table, you know, then I think that's, kind of helps Cody's case because really the UFC could choose it you know either or depending on what they have happen what they need so I think that's just something food for thought is that I don't know if Figueredo would have headlined without another champion had there not been you know these extenuating circumstances do you get what I mean yeah that, that's what I'm saying like timing is everything like we did see the, the numbers, whether embedded, countdown, all that stuff that Ferguson and Oliveira did in comparison. To, and that's no disrespect to Figueredo. I mean, the flyweight division in general, I think he's do, actually doing a fantastic job of kind of reviving, especially after Cejudo retired. So uh, nothing against, uh, like against him and what he's doing. He's been putting on spectacular performances and fights. But sometimes it's like you, like Oliveira and Ferguson was draw, like to a lot of people, was the main event of, of the night. And again, I don't mean that as any disrespect to the flyweight. So yeah, I see what you mean when when they won't necessarily put them as a headliner. Uh, they, they could put them as a co-main event, depending on, on which, maybe to the Stipe and, and, and 
um, in Ganu fight or something. Yeah. yeah, or something like that. Uh, but I, again, like I said, timing's everything, and I, it just really depends on when Cody is healthy. And um, Cody can always go to the USC and be like, "I had the title shot; it was mine." So it, it's yeah. an easy pitch from his point of view. So I guess we'll just see. Yeah, I, I would agree. Also, remember, uh, I remember going on Instagram right after the Figueredo Perez fight. And Cody was out there saying, yeah, the UFC told me that, you know, get myself better and the next title shot is mine. And I'm like, I mean, that's kind of saying a lot. So I think that that's also, you know, the point is we're going to have to wait and see. But like we said, it's not completely written off for either guy just yet. And I think that that's what makes it interesting is that somebody is going to get left out in the end, whether it's Cody or Moreno. Um, But like you bring it up, Cody's not healthy yet. And that could really be the big factor, excuse me, hiccups, but um, why that does or does not happen next for either guy. Let's move on to the co-main event. This one, um, I'll be honest, when it got booked, I was like, hey, no matter what, this is going to go down back and forth in the battle. My goodness, Charles Oliveira with the performance of his career just throttled Tony Ferguson, got on top of him, did what he wanted. Uh, Farah, my biggest thing in the first round, I felt like, um, Tony, I I know he was on the defensive. He was kind of, he was not leading the dance, but there were several shots. He was piercing the guard as Oliveira was walking him down. And one of the things, you know, we've come to know, myself included, you know, we talk about it. He's a big lightweight. He's got those big hands. He's got solid power. He leaves consecutive opponents looking like they've been through a horror movie, all bloody, the fact that Oliveira really walked him down and took those shots early before the arm bar, before he's tired him out a little bit, I think to me that was the most impressive. I think that that showed the development overall. We've kind of said it is that Oliveira's turned the corner. But really, I think that the old Charles Oliveira, he gets in those positions, he probably doesn't keep going and rally back and everything else. He really was, he took a lot of good shots from Tony early and he just put it on him to take that fight. I was very impressed. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's kind of proven how well-rounded he's been recently. I mean, in, in his winning streak, he had a knockouts of Jared Gordon and Nick Lenz. I mean, he's, he recently moved to Diego Lima's shooter box and they're like traditional, uh, aggressive Muay Thai striking. So he's recently, I think maybe three, four years ago, moved over there and really refined his striking. He's obviously got incredible jiu-jitsu, so he's become super well-rounded. But something I've noticed in, in Oliveira, even in his losses, like before that incredible winning streak that he's on, the loss to Paul Felder, the loss to Ricardo Lamas, the loss to Anthony Pettis, he was winning those fights. He, he was looking fantastic. Like I remember uh, against Lamas, the way he picked him up and slammed him. Like He was dominating him. Uh, he just got caught, he got complacent, and it's crazy to see that he got submitted by Lamas and Pettis. And then even the Paul Felder fight, if I, if I recall, he had his good moments early, but Felder kind of just, like, Felder was in, in trouble. He, uh, he uh, Oliveira had him in some compromising positions before Felder kind of um, turned things around on him and kind of broke him. Um, and that's obviously credit to, to Felder's toughness, but Oliveira's always had moments of brilliance, even in his losses. So he's so good, and and something that's fantastic about him is not only is he an incredible jiu-jitsu artist, obviously he's like the all-time leader in submission wins in the UFC, but he actually can can wrestle. Like he's got good takedowns, and that's very important because we see a lot of guys who 
will kind of box and use their jiu-jitsu, kind of like the Diaz brothers or Ortega, like where they'll capitalize with their jiu-jitsu, but they won't necessarily be offensive with their wrestling. But no, like Oliveira, like the way he was picking Tony up and just slamming him uh, was super impressive. Like he, he's got the ability to take anybody down. So he's truly, truly a well-rounded fighter from his grappling to his jiu-jitsu to his striking. So uh, yeah, and he's technical. So I was super impressed. I did not think it would be one-way traffic like that. And Anyone would have tapped to that on board. I mean, Tony Ferguson's oh, incredibly yeah. tough. That that could have been an easily another finish on his resume. I believe that this was only his the third time in his entire career that he goes a distance, which is insane. I don't even remember the last time uh, Oliveira win or lose has gone the distance. Like, if I could remember that maybe Jeremy Stevens, if I'm not mistaken, that was like yeah, it's been years. Oh yeah, no, I'm completely with you. This does not happen often. He's the kind of fighter that you have to take him out because he's so dangerous, or he gets the job done. I'm with you. Yeah, so it's super, super impressed, and definitely uh, showed like he he finally had his breakthrough moment. I feel like a lot of times he was falling short in those big fights. Uh, whether I remember the two fight losing skid he had with Swanson and Edgar, and then he went on a nice winning streak. Then he lost to Max Holloway. And then he had lost a Pettis. He had lost three of his last four at one point with the losses to Felder and Lamas and, and uh, Pettis. And then he goes on this incredible win streak. And then it's like, there's the big fight against Kevin Lee. He wins it. It's like, all right, here's the really big fight against Tony Ferguson. And looks absolutely flawless. So I feel like he's finally broken through and lived up to his potential. And he's only 31. What the hell? It's crazy. Yeah, you know, uh, I remember when I was breaking this down, I remembered... He was either the youngest or one of the youngest when he first joined the UFC at like 20 years old. And, you know, you remember he automatically started submitting guys and he was on a good run. And then, you know, he started fighting more veterans and that, you know, that began that up and down. He'd win a few, lose, win one, lose two. You know, things would go up and down for him. And, um, you know, it just looked like... Similar to Dos Anjos for a while earlier in his career that like, you know, he may be relegated to being a middle of the pack guy. It didn't seem like that big breakthrough, you know, when he lost the like three of the four you said or something like that. It just seemed like it was never going to happen for him. Like, you know, if it was going to happen, it would have by now. Right. Kind of mentality. But I think that's a testament to just his passion for the game, his commitment to reinvention. Like you said, working with the shoot box team. Um, capitalizing on a lot of the skills he's had since he was younger in his career. I think that um, mental, I think physical, he's also grown into his frame a little bit. He's a little more powerful than he was early in his career. I think you put all those things together and that's what's led to this just renaissance for him. And I think that's been very exciting to see. It does put the final nail in the coffin of potential Tony Habib, Tony for the title, at least in the short term. Um, I think that's the easiest one is that Tony is not done. I know Tony said it himself. I'm not planning on retiring. Don't even talk like that. But when I look at 2021, and we'll obviously get into this right now with Charles Oliveira, you got the big fight obviously coming up, Connor and Poirier. We're expecting Michael Chandler to fight. Dan Hooker, Justin Gaethje, one of those guys. Just the way they tend to all get scheduled, I do not see those guys fighting three times a year. I do feel like we're going to see the Poirier-Connor winner. They're going to figure out who did they fight, whether it's a Chandler or a Oliveira. 
And then maybe, maybe late in the year, you could have a wiggle room for somebody else. But in all honesty, I don't see that happening. Like, I know Conor McGregor, he gets a lot of people excited about his season and being active. I see Conor McGregor, best case scenario, fighting twice. And I see the same most likely for Poirier or Chandler. So the way I see it is that Tony Ferguson 2021 has to be a year of reinvention. I've heard people throw out Paul Felder, guys like that. I think those are great. But yeah, I think that with 2021 now moving forward, it it's going to be very hard for anyone else to break into those big four that are coming up with Charles, Conor, Poirier, and Michael Chandler. Yeah, I, honestly, like you said, like 2021 for Ferguson. I mean, it's the second pretty brutal loss in a row. Uh, a, a fight like Paul Felder would be perfect for him, though, because Paul Felder's got the name value. Um, he's in a similar spot as Tony, com- coming off a couple of losses in a row, I believe. Uh, it's still a great fight. It's still a fight that's going to get people excited. And that's the great thing about the lightweight division. There are plenty of matchups like that for Tony Ferguson. So even if he's kind of excluded out of the, the top four at the moment, you can always match, like, if he could get a win over a guy like Paul Felder, you can always matchmake him with one of the losers of those fights, whether it being Poirier or McGregor, the loser of that fight, then whoever Chandler fights, whether it's Hooker or Gaethje, um, there are still possibilities where he could fight those big names and be part of these big fights and even headline fight night uh, events. So the the good thing for Tony is lightweight is stacked and it's got a lot of big names and a lot of matchups that could get people excited. So yeah, maybe he's going to be excluded out of the top four, top five discussion, but you know, he could, he could work his way. If, I mean, if he's obviously willing to be active, like he was, you know, kind of saving the, the UFC 256 card. So it's all, it's all about like mentally where he's at. He says he's not done yet, but I think there are plenty of exciting matchups for him to remain relevant. Some like in the maybe not direct title contention picture, but just the lightweight picture. Yeah, I'm with you there. Also, I think there are a few things. Um, I mean, this fight three weeks notice. I mean, I asked Charles. He said, "No, like the same day you found out earlier that day was when they called me and said, are you in you versus Tony?'" I mean. I know he's made changes. He's kind of coaching himself a little bit. I mean, he brought a corner and he brought trainers, but he doesn't have like a head guy leading it. I think that that's something, you know, look, it's obviously worked for him for a long time. But I think that, you know, whatever he's got with his team and then also a longer training camp. Also, not for nothing, you're taking on Charles Oliveira, the leader in submissions. And I found it notable that he did not have Eddie Bravo with him. I think Eddie was coaching somebody at a jiu-jitsu or something. But I also felt like, you know, if you don't have Eddie Bravo with you for Justin Gaethje, that's one thing. If you don't have Eddie Bravo's assi- assistance coaching, however you want to use it in the corner, for a guy like Charles, I found that one very surprising. So I just think that on a personal level, like, hey, you know, does he maybe need to tweak a few things in his preparation? I love that he stepped up. I think that that's why he's the type of guy the fans love, pun intended. But I think that, um, yeah, just a few things there would probably, you know, they're worth discussing if you're Tony Ferguson, in my opinion. Because I do want to see him out there. He's an exciting guy, and he's, like you said, he was the people's main event for a lot of those reasons that I said. He brings it, and we all know what kind of personality he is, too. 
Um, I want to talk to you real quick about the lightweight title picture. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I hear it. I know Dana White believes fully in his ability to get Habib back for one more. Every time I think about it, he's got his farm now. He's got his own MMA company. He's in, at, uh, I understand, like his cell phone, like cell service. He's, he's involved in that business now. I am less and less inclined to think that there is something that Dana White has to offer Habib that will get him to come back out there. I think that he's really done there. Which leads to the question. We know that the Conor Poirier winner, if they don't attach a belt to it by the time we get to next month, they are going to fight whatever you know for the title next, whether it's vacant or against Habib. I'm going to assume vacant, so I'm going to ask you, where do we go? Because is Charles Vera... Charles Oliveira, did he lock it in? Or do we feel like Michael Chandler could just unseat him from the top spot to take on the winner of Conor and Poirier? <laughs> I do think he possibly can, to be honest, because a lot like was made, obviously, with Chandler signing. He came as a backup to the title fight. It's a big deal. Whether he fights Gaethje or Dan Hooker, if he wins in impressive fashion, I honestly think that's enough. And I definitely think... Um, if they go, unfortunately for Charles, if they go the direction of, I honestly, I think the winner of Conor Poirier is a lock for one half of the title fight, if that's the direction they're going to go with, uh, like a vacant title fight and Habib not returning. I do think the winner of McGregor Poirier is a lock for fighter A. And then, yeah, honestly, if if um, if Chandler wins, whoever he beats, I think he's fighter B. And if Chandler loses to whoever, I think then they could slide Charles Oliveira in. Uh, yeah, that's that's how I see it. Obviously, nothing is set in stone, but unfortunately for Charles, being that he doesn't speak English, maybe doesn't have the name value that some of these other guys do, um, I could see him getting passed up. That is very tough, and you outlined all the reasons why it's exactly very possible. It, like, it hurt me listening to you say that. Like, you're going to do that? <laughs> you know I, what I, I mean? I'm not saying I agree. I'm just saying, like, that's what I could see happening considering the, you know, entertainment, promotion, hype, all that. Like, don't forget the fact. I mean, that, I mean, my article when I talk about it is going to be, this was all Farah Hanoun's idea. <laughs> no, but, uh, no hey, I, I'm look, with you. No, no, no. I have a lot of respect for, for the shoot the box guys. I have a great relationship with the team over there. So I'd never, I'd never say that that's what should happen. I think Charles did more than enough to prove that he's worthy. I mean, he looked phenomenal. Look at the winning streak he's on. So definitely don't want to see another case of Tony Ferguson where he was on a 12-fight winning streak and not getting the official title fight. So yeah, yeah I mean, 100 yeah. fights scrapped with Heavy, but you get my drift. Yeah, I, I think that they're going to... Um... It's going to come down to some timing, some negotiation, who for sure is going to be like if they say, OK, you know, Conor Poirier, the winner there, we're doing a big fight July, maybe Fight Island, maybe Vegas. And we get fans in there. I doubt it. But, uh, you know, that's you get my drift. And they're like, hey, who is easiest to negotiate with? They're probably going to want Chandler first. I think stylistically he's a fun fight. We know that Charles is, you know, the other person's most likely going to be in a backup situation. But I think the fact is, who comes out and who's going to make it the easiest to negotiate? Because I think that it could be one of those cases like, hey, look, you know, you're going to have to just sign on the dotted line. Because just like Leon Edwards and Burns and 
Masvidal over the summer, like it could very easily go to the next guy and we are just going to forget all about this. You know what I mean? So I think they'll all figure it out. I think you outlined it. If Chandler loses, obviously it's Charles. If Chandler wins, it's hard to see them not go with Chandler, particularly if he does end up fighting Gaethje. Dan Hooker may not look as shiny on the resume, but you know, it. It. I think that that's a big thing. And also the timing. I feel like the closer it gets, the less likely I think that they're going to add Chandler to the Connor Poirier fight week. But, but who knows? But my point is that the more the, the closer we get to it, the less likely I feel like it'll happen. I think more now it'll start landing on like the February pay-per-view or something. So, But yeah, a lot of lightweight, a lot of lightweight conundrums. You know what? No, it's a heavyweight conundrum. <laughs> anyway, these are the kind of jokes you get when you subscribe and tune in every week. Just FYI. Tell your friends. Anyway, um, before we move on from the pay-per-view, uh, tough losses for Jacare. Great win for Kevin Holland, but tough loss for Jacare. Um, same thing, Cyril Gunn looked great, but JDS, he drops to 0-4. We know about the cuts. Everyone is talking about them. Are Jacare and JDS on the chopping block, in your opinion? You know what? I Before, I would have said no, but now seeing this kind of... Uh new approach uh, or or not maybe not new approach but seeing the UFC going through heavy cuts I don't know what Dana said it was over 60 fighters or something hearing that and the reasoning behind uh, what they're doing it makes me feel like yeah uh, I mean JDS I believe is on a four fight losing streak all via finish Um, yeah I mean it, it was a tough fight for JDS anyway, fighting the rising. I'm very high on, on, on Cyril Gunn. Uh, I'm a big fan of his. I think he's super talented. It's crazy how raw he is in the sport. He's barely started. I think he hasn't even been three years into his pro. I'm like training MMA in general. So the sky's the limit for him. I think he's a fantastic talent. It was just a tough fight for JDS to take. Um it's tough. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, especially if we're seeing uh, if he could find a new home and uh, the likes of Bellator, even, you know, Verdun went to PFL, maybe maybe go for that, go for the heavyweight $1 million or whatnot. I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, if the UFC uh, let go of JDS and Jack Ray, because now there are options. Um, there are options for them to go and... Um, just it seems like with what the UFC are trying to do right now, building the new talent on the contender series and stuff like that, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if both of them honestly were cut. Yeah, when I think about everything, and I hear everything, you know, like what is the cost and how much are these veterans on their contracts? JDS brought something up is that if the UFC wants you, you are never too expensive. And I do agree with that. What I think that they really weigh is that do you have somebody who is one can you still get them to that champion top contender star level and two could they get in the way of younger people who still have that potential if you don't i think that for jds i think that you have to start weighing in like hey do you still see him being a top 10 guy or is he a guy you are going to relegate to the andre arlovsky He's fighting maybe some more up-and-comers, but we're not necessarily talking about, you know, top five title track fighters and opponents for him. I think that's something they're going to weigh for JDS. I do think that um, 
the situation does not look good, to put it bluntly. And then the same for Jacare. I think that this one really, you know, suddenly now we kind of got to start talking about it. Is Jacare getting in the way of the Kevin Hollands, the Hamzat Shemaevs, and other guys like that uh, coming up? And I think that, um, you know, I think that his window where he would have gotten to that next level, it was obviously when he was on that win streak parallel with Yoel Romero, and Yoel Romero just was the one that won and got it. But um, I think that when you look at Jacare, he's just in the same position as that, you know, if you're going to use him, is he going to get in the way of other people? Because if so, then I think it's the time to let him go. Um, and I think that's just what UFC will choose. I actually like it for them both because I think that at this point, you could still make money and be in big fights in Bellator. Whereas I think Jacare and JDS, they're most likely to be fighting middle of the pack guys they're going to be used to put other people over they're not necessarily going to be in the hunt themselves so if it's about being in UFC by all means you know I'm sure they would probably bring that up in negotiation but I think that for the most part that it's just about where do you want to go what do you want next for your career because I think that if it's up to UFC they'll just be like hey either take this or we're out and I think that's just going to be it I think what it is is because, like I said, if this was before, I don't think they necessarily would have cut either one of them just because of their name value. But it just seems like the UFC is approaching things differently. Because look at Andrea Arlovsky at one point lost five straight, four by finish, if I'm not mistaken. And then I think won a couple and then lost four straight. Or, or I think one of the wins was overturned. I think Walt Harris's win was overturned. But look at, like... Um, at one point, he literally lost. What is that? I don't. Want yeah, he he had like my four, part. Yeah, yeah he like had like the four seven. four losses. Yeah, yeah like it was he bad. Lost nine of eleven at one point. If I'm calculating that correctly, I just scrambled my brain there. But like nine of eleven at one point, and now he's kind of cha- tamed the style. He's one two in a row. But I feel like the reason he stuck around is because he's got a name and he's a, a legend and he's a well respected name. So that's why I would have said maybe a couple of years ago, despite the losing skid, they would have stuck around. But now seeing the UFC let go of guys like that and, and making cuts and trying to breed the new talent, I wouldn't be surprised. But a couple of years ago, I don't think they would have necessarily been on the chopping block just because of their name. I mean, JDS is a former champion. Jack Curry's got a big name in his own right as well. Yeah, and I feel like we're experiencing some turnover, in the, especially at middleweight. I feel like they've got just like a new group of elite guys right now coming up. And same at heavyweight. I mean, you know, you just look at Curtis Blades now is at that level. Derek Lewis, um, you know, they've got more guys coming up. So I think that that's just it. Gone now. Obviously, like, he's going to make a big jump up that, um, yeah, I think just timing, like you said, it's not, um, it doesn't bode well for them. But look, I think there's going to be a market for them. I certainly feel they're going to both fight again. So, you know, I would like to see them stay because I like to see them fight other names that we're familiar with more so. But um, yeah, I also feel like if it happens, I can't say I'm surprised. So that's where we're at. But yeah, great card overall. We could talk about it the rest of the episode. Cub Swanson, Mackenzie Dern, Kevin Holland, Chase Super. A lot of good stuff. A lot of uh, good television. But I want to talk about some news. Um, You have a quite the interesting situation so last week we talked about Yoel Romero the free agent but apparently Bellator and PFL weren't interested 
It is now a week later. Everyone's done a 180. Not only is Bellator taking Yo Romero, he's going to debut at light heavyweight. And not for nothing, they've also gotten Anthony Rumble Johnson now. This makes it very exciting. It's a very good start for Bellator going into 2021. I want to talk about probably the easier one, Anthony Rumble Johnson. Um, first off, for the fun of it, Fada, who do you think is the best knockout artist? Rumble or Nganu? <laughs> uh, I know, I mean... it's a hard one. But that's why I felt like asking you because I knew you'd have a good answer. <laughs> I I don't like. Can I even answer that? Uh, we'd have to see like we'd have to see them fight, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, like just both of them possess ridiculous power. Um, like every time I put that poll on my social media, it always ends up very very close to fifty fifty. It is I I just it is a travesty that. They did not fight, especially when they were talking about Rumble coming back to UFC at heavyweight. I'm like, oh my god, this is gonna be, you know, as hyped as you originally were for possibly Lewis and Ganu, you know, before they entered the Twilight Zone for 15 minutes. I was like, oh my god, this might produce the best knockout we've ever seen. And like Tony and Habib, it just wasn't meant to be. So, but yeah, I just like the fun of it. Um, just Rumble and Bellator. What are your thoughts? I, look, I, I'm surprised. I think because there's just like this one, like this waiting period of us, like waiting what to, like what's gonna happen. So maybe we just didn't expect it to happen. So I am surprised, but I honestly think like he just spoke to to my colleague Nolan King at MMA Junkie. It seems like it was purely a money thing. Just got a better offer, and at this point in his career, I don't blame him uh, for taking that. I I still would have loved to see so many fights for him. Uh, in the UFC, whether a light heavyweight or heavyweight, I think there were a pl plenty of excitement because the division has changed since he was a title challenger. Uh, I mean, DC's retired. Um, John Jones has moved up to heavyweight, so a lot has changed uh, at light heavyweight and heavyweight. So we didn't even get to see the John Jones fight with Rumble. So, not gonna lie, I would have liked for him to to stick around the UFC, but I, I understand his decision uh, at this point in his career to, to take the better financial offer. Uh, it's just a shame that there were some, like, I, I don't know what version we would have gotten from him because it's been a while. Uh, but I like, it's a big win for, for Bellator at the end of the day, especially now with the Romero, make them fight. I mean, I know some people are like, like let Romero get his feet wet at 205, let him fight somebody else. But why? Why even jeopardize that fight not happening? Like, this would be a huge fight for Bellator. People would watch Rumble and Romero fight anywhere. Any organization, boxing, bare knuckles, submission underground, you name it. People are going to watch that fight. So why on earth wouldn't you make it? Like, why even risk or jeopardize one of them losing and losing, like, losing the idea of that matchup? Make him fight. Make the winner fight Nemkov. Like, why not? You know what I mean? They've got the name. Uh, everyone's going to want to watch that fight. That's going to be one of the most highly anticipated matchups Bellator's probably ever put. So I say make that fight right away. Yeah, you risk one of them losing and maybe you wanted to build both of them, but not really. I mean, even if Rumble loses, if if Romero loses, I mean, Romero's 43. Like, you're, why are you going to wait around? He's there's no time. You're not going to build Romero up in the division. Like, Romero, you sign a guy like Romero, it's a big fight right off the bat. Like, what are we even doing here, right? Like, there's no point of making Romero run, like, build himself up the ranks. He's not a young prospect. He's 43. And why risk 
putting him up some of, against a lesser-known younger talent and risk him losing, then what? Then what's the point of you even inking a deal with, with Romero? So I say put him against Rumble right off the bat. I had a completely other plan, and I'm not going to lie. Your passion for this topic really made me rethink my answer. <laughs> and it, no, it's great. Um, for myself, uh, one, I missed the Nolan King interview with Rumble. I'm actually surprised because I felt like that's a guy that you... I mean, you've got... Argu- I just brought it up. He's arguably the best knockout artist in UFC MMA history. He's a guy who had de- fights left on his contract. I really felt like... If he's going to fight, he would, you know, that he's a guy they're not just going to let go. But I think that you bring up the time and how things have changed since then. If he's getting a bigger, better deal and the management said, like, you know what? We can survive without Rumble Johnson, even if you come back as, you know, he comes back as Rumble. He's not just some guy named Anthony. He's Rumble. You get what I mean? I totally yeah. feel like... It, Okay, I mean, if the UFC's taking that risk, I think that says a lot. But um, like you said, big win for Bellator. I will say this about it. I almost feel like you can risk it because you know why? Think about how they tend to unveil a lot of these fighters. I think that with Liz Carmouche, for example, Kat Zingano, I can see some... Uh, Corey Anderson, I was blanking on him. I was trying to think who just got a good one. They tend yeah. to give these big name guys some good matchmaking. And I really felt like there is a light heavyweight that is a good matchup for Romero. And just about anybody, if you're going to throw hands, is going to be a good matchup for Rumble. Because, you know, uh, we'd like to joke at our website, every time you do a fight breakdown, you know, Rumble Johnson keys to victory. It's just like one word, hands. Like, let's be honest, it doesn't need much else. So, to me, but, I felt... Okay, wait, go, let me interrupt you, though. Go ahead. <laughs> what, what if you put Rumble Johnson against whoever and comes out exploding, doesn't get the finish early, gasses out, whoever else, whoever the other guy beats him, then what? What's the point of this big signing? Like, why risk that? That's just my take. Like, why, why even risk that? Why risk putting... Rumble Johnson in supposedly same thing for Romero, uh, a like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a supposed easy fight, like a gimme fight. And then what if it doesn't pan out? You kind of miss out on that big momentum that you've got in signing these guys that aren't necessarily like people have the notion that a lot of the Bellator signings are these quote unquote washed up older guys. No, you've got two guys. Yeah, Romero's on some sort of losing skid, but they were very tightly contested fights with the like of Paulo Costa, Robert Whitaker, Adesanya. He's still very good. I don't know. I just say don't don't risk. Like, you have a chance to put on a phenomenal main event, a phenomenal fight that's going to draw so many eyes to your promotion um, more than, like, I don't know, any fight that you can put together right now. I don't know. I say go for it. it there are risks. I totally get it, but I just say go for it. I just felt Sorry. like, I feel like they want to bottleneck this thing. I feel like you want to give Rumble an easy fight, Romero an easy fight. Just make them all. I, I'll say this. Rumble, Nemkov right away. Put Romero in the easy fight. You get the big fight for the title. Uh, you headline more cards overall in Bellator. Everybody wins. Um, because I think if you do Rumble Romero right off the bat, you just lower the stock of one of them because didn't 
the impression I've been getting every time I hear Scott Coco talk is that they want a little more long-term people. Like, that's why they're building up these prospects and everything, because there's a long-term future for them. A lot of these UFC guys, your Anderson Silva, maybe Fabricio Verdum, I think that, you know, you feel like they're a one-and-done kind of fighter. You don't have a long future left, and they've got a high price tag for these guys. I think the fans, credit to them, I think they let Bellator know, we want to see Yoel Romero. And that's why they changed their stance and they decided, you know what, fans are letting us know that, you know, if they said, ah, maybe they'll sign Anderson Silva. But when they said, you know, they're tagging Coker, like, y'all need to pick up this guy, I want to see him fight. I think that that's something they responded to. Now, talk, going back to your point, I just feel like, okay, if you're, t- if you're doing this, you're spending the money, it's because you want the most big fights out of them possible. Mind you, being selfish, by all means, let's do it. Let's have some fun. Let's throw some heavy leather with two of the most ripped guys in, you know, mixed martial arts right now. I just feel like there's a long-term plan. And that's why we won't see it right away, and it'll still be a big deal. I completely get what you're saying, but I just feel like that's not what we've seen them do for years. Benson Henderson, well, Benson got it, but Giga Musasi didn't get an immediate title shot. A bunch of other guys didn't get immediate ones. Michael McDonald, stuff like that. So, I just don't see it happening, Farah. I just feel like they're going to make them fight somebody else first. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're (laughs) right. That's the problem. You're right. I'm just saying, like, I... No, you got me excited now. It's all good. (laughs) Like, I... Like, I... You know what I mean? Like, get get people, like, crazy excited. I, they'll watch Romero and they'll watch Anthony Johnson's debut regardless, but I just feel like you have an opportunity to, to put... Because no disrespect to Nemkov, he just he doesn't have that name value um, yeah. yet, so you're not going to sell this crazy fight, even if it's the title fight. Uh, if, it, if Bader was still champ, he obviously has history with Rumble and... Um, hasn't fought Romero before, but Bader's got a bigger name. He's been um, in the spotlight or bigger fights throughout his career than Nemkov has. So, but now with Nemkov as champion, I just the, the title fight isn't even going to be um, as big of a deal. But I'm just thinking like one night only type of mentality as opposed to future. So I totally get where you're coming from as well. I mean, they've done those things too, though. That's what makes this complicated. Uh, it would. It would be great either way, but I just feel like they've... I'll say this. I think that Scott Coker in more recent years and months, he's definitely been more like, look, you know, like, we're not... I'm trying to build this long term. And I think that one of the things that doesn't always help in that is those short term goals, just building, you know, like, why did it take so long for AJ McKee to fight Pitbull? You know, I think that he's trying to make it so it's like you really have this in the long game. And that's my one thing. As much as I want to see it happen tomorrow, I think that that's just what they have in mind when they're signing these guys. And look, I mean, they're both healthy to my knowledge. We could see them both fight by January, February. By the summer, they're fighting against each other. So that's just what I'm thinking. We've gotten very passionate. I forgot we have one more thing to talk about. Um, the flyweight championship, uh, not the 
one on Saturday, but the one on Thursday. Juliana Velasquez versus Alima McFarlane, the Battle of the Undefeateds, the Queen of Hawaii versus the Dark Horse of Brazil. A lot of just, you know, in case you haven't noticed, I like my metaphors and my titles when I talk. Um, I was very impressed with uh, Alima's toughness. When I was breaking down that fight, I thought if she doesn't get Juliana down, this is a probably short night for the reigning champion. I was impressed that she took a lot of the shots she did. I thought that Juliana controlled the distance well. Her striking, she was clearly the better striker. Uh, Alima got into this pattern, very dangerous. She just kind of would try to surge forward. And just Juliana just moved out of the way, countered all night. It was just a very good performance. Alima kind of woke up a little later. She got some critical takedowns late in the fight, but... I found it similar to the Valentina-Jennifer Maya fight. I felt like while Alima got those rounds in, I don't feel like she mounted the significant offense. And, you know, quite bluntly, I think that Juliana just really had her number and had the style that really posed Alima problems. I was very impressed. I think that we're seeing the start of a very exciting new chapter at Flyweight. What were your thoughts? Yeah, she looked great. Uh, she looked great, and uh, Ilima was just having a hard time kind of closing that gap. I mean, Velasquez was making her pay every single time. Uh, Ilima showed a lot of toughness. Uh, I know she kind of almost felt like almost turned the tide uh, in the fourth round, I believe, when she got the takedown and cut Velasquez. But um, just overall, Velasquez looked like she was a step ahead in everything, even sometimes in the grappling as well. Um, just hit her with with knees and just kind of like made made Ilima pay every single time she tried to clo like close that distance and get the takedown. She couldn't Im implement and impose uh, the usual game plan that she's able to. So uh, yeah, I just thought Velasquez was for the most part pretty dominant. Yeah, I think that um, what made this one very interesting was I feel like Bellator was very slow. Lending to the long game again, they were very slow to book this fight. If you remember last year, Juliana was everybody's number one contender. And then they chose to go with Kate Jackson, which I found perplexing. I felt like, you know, are they trying to just make sure Alima really showcases herself in Hawaii? I'm not sure. But um, just the impression I got was like, look, this is a long time coming. I feel like you could have made the argument that Juliana had the tougher schedule in terms of the that year, in terms of fighting Alejandra Lara, Bruna Ellen, um, Christina Williams, who a lot of people thought was going to, you know, step out, you know, jump through and break through there. So I felt like this was just a very, just a very good culmination to see for Juliana. Alima's obviously still there, but now you have the situation. You've got Liz Carmouche, who's now in Bellator. You've got Denise Kaholtz, four-fight win streak. Uh, Vanessa Porto, four-fight win streak. Invicta Champion just signed with Bellator. Um, so there's options. And I think that... Um, I don't know what Scott Coker is waiting for. I know that he just signed, uh, in case you haven't heard, Yoel Romero and Anthony Rumble Johnson. For a 205 pound tournament, maybe, but I feel like the women, you could easily do that too. So I guess it's just which one in the end do they feel they really want to cash in on with the tournament and the way they structure it. So I think that that's going to, you know what, Fada, that's going to speak to everything we just said. Are they thinking short game or are they thinking long game? Mm -hmm. Because long game, yep. I think they'll do a 205 tournament. 
short game the flyweight tournament so you could do whatever you want at 205. I think that that's another problem we're going to have to figure out. Um, I think the problem with, with the flyweights is a lot of them have already fought each other. So maybe that's why a, a tournament setting may not be too appealing. Uh, but if you just go with uh, m- like matchmaking, like in terms of who gets the next title shot, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Elise Carmouche just because she's a former multiple-time UFC title challenger. She looked good in her Bellator debut. Could end up giving Carmouche and have maybe Denise and Vanessa fight um, Alejandra Lara's in the mix. Like, it depends when Elima wants to, to come back. I, I do recall her talking about being burnt out and feeling kind of a weight off of her shoulders, not being champion anymore. So really depends on, on, on that. But you could match make them. I know that sounds like a tournament, what I just said, but uh, if a lot of them have already fought each other and you put it in a tournament setting and they may end up rematching each other, if you don't want to do that, then just separately match make the girls that I just mentioned and maybe give someone like Carmouche a, a title shot maybe because they were building Elimale and then she had the name and they had her uh, compete in Hawaii and stuff obviously we're in COVID now there's none of that but uh, maybe with I mean Juliana Vasquez is undefeated you could build her too uh, but maybe to help build her uh, even further give her a Liz Carmouche who's got name value it goes back to the thing I was saying whether you kind of capitalize on the name value or um, risk having those bigger names lose and, and potentially not get those big fights. I mean, when I look at it, I try to think of um, the bracket like as we usually see it. And you have, you know, eight on the, you know, four on both sides for eight people to start. I feel like we saw with the featherweight tournament, you can bracket those girls if you get the, you know, if you put them in the right combination. The only problem is you'd see the rematches all in that second round, like you said. Exactly, so, yeah. Yeah, that's the real issue with that one. I, like you said, I, I actually like your idea more. I think that they're just better off with the 205 tournament and then just doing the flyweights, just match them up straight across rather than worry about who's going to rematch who if you try to separate these names or that names on opposite ends of the bracket to meet in the final potentially, so... I think that that's probably the best idea. And also, um, you know what? Ah, well, then does that mean we're doing a 205 tournament? I guess Maybe Bantamweight. That's true. But okay, you know what? 205 tournament and we just put Rumble and Romero in the first round. No, You no. win, I win, everyone's no. happy. No, I don't like that. The idea, <laughs> just, the idea of having one of them on paper being eliminated in the first round is not a good look. That's what you wanted. You wanted them to fight each other right off yeah, the bat. I'm giving you what like you that. wanted. <laughs> yeah, but not in a tournament setting like that. Because if, you, like, if you're going to put them in a the tournament, then obviously you're going to try to cater it of them. I know what I'm saying makes zero sense because it's not like it's a one-night tournament. Yeah. I'm probably thinking one-night tournament seven mentality, but... Uh, no, I don't know. I feel like their stock will go down if it's on paper. You got eliminated in the first round of a tournament. Um, that's just a silly way of looking at it. But I don't know. Like, I, if it's a tournament, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put them to fight each other right off the bat. I put them in like. I mean, you still can put them in a big main event if they're the first round of a tournament. But I don't know. Something about it being called the first round of a tournament <laughs> makes it seem like it's not that important. Uh, within the tournament uh, you know what I'm gonna just call this one wait and see maybe bantamweight maybe flyweight maybe light heavyweight 
We'll find out. Scott Coker, have a good Christmas. Figure this out for us in the new year. <laughs> oh, that's that's funny. I gotta be honest. Um, let's close this out. We've had a long show. Uh, this Saturday, the last UFC event of the year. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, Jeff Neal. They're stepping up. Obviously, the card lost. Leon Edwards versus Hamzat Chemaev. Um, You know what? The NMF was very BMF. He said, yeah, let's do it. And let's do it five rounds. Jeff Neal said, I'm ready to dance. I'll do five rounds. No problem. I'm excited. Um, There's a lot of just little factors going in. Obviously, welterweight is so complicated right now that the winner of this one, you know, could make it even more convoluted. Uh, you have the fact that they haven't fought in a while. You have a kind of like, I don't even want to call it crossroads, but definitely for Wonder Boy, you win. You're probably in talks to fight somebody at the top in a title eliminator, considering the situation. And then if you're Jeff Neal, this is that one that gets you to those bigger fights. So there's a lot to break down in that, you know, just outside the octagon before we even get there. What are your thoughts on the matchup, though, Farah? And I know you talked to Wonderboy, and I agree with you. I think he would have a future at the analyst desk, to be honest. Yeah, uh, he actually gets asked to break stuff down all the time. I know I did. I threw like five different questions at him in terms of breaking down stuff. But yeah, he, he does some. He does a lot on his YouTube channel as well. So he obviously is keen on doing that kind of content. But yeah, I, I love the fight stylistically. I think Neil isn't just a knockout artist as he's being dubbed. He's not a guy who... He's actually a really intelligent striker and uh, is a well-rounded striker. He's got great footwork as well. So he's not... You see a lot of devastating knockouts on his resume and you assume that he's a guy that just like swinging in the pocket recklessly or anything like that. Not at all. I mean, he's a he's a very good striker and he can grapple as well. So he's not um, he's not going to be an easy test for Wonder Boy either. It's just Wonder Boy's so creative and and unique with his stance stance switches and and his karate stance and um, we saw it in the Vicente Luque fight. Uh, he just like Luque was connecting early but after wonder boy figured him out it was just an absolute masterclass of a clinic that wonder boy put on him from straight lefts to sidekicks to like luke just looked confused in there uh towards the end like midway through the second round so it's an interesting stylistic matchup but we have to factor in that jeff neal has the ability he has 25 minutes to knock wonder boy out that's a long time we don't know if he's going to get tired there are questions of whether he has the cardio, it's 25 minutes. Neil has never gone past. I don't think he's ever been booked for a 25-minute fight. He's never, definitely never gone past 15 minutes. So uh, cardio is going to be a good question. We know Wonder Boy can do 25 minutes easily. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting fight. I mean, Wonder Boy thinks that Neil is going to try to mix in the wrestling at one point. He's been working with Chris Weidman on that. So uh, he's confident that Neil is going to try to wrestle him at some point, try to clinch up and muscle him. Um, kind of to to stifle that that movement and that offense from Wonder Boy, but yeah, it's a great fight um, and big like it's big for Wonder Boy because booking him against Luke and then booking him against Neil, it's almost like they're trying to corner him into that gatekeeper. I hate using that word, but it's almost like they're trying to corner him into that spot. And he's far from that. I mean, uh, his fights against Woodley were pretty really close, and then. The loss to, to, to Anthony Pettis was obviously devastating for him, but it happens. I mean, Pettis is a finisher, and he's a very slick and creative striker, so anything can happen in an Anthony Pettis fight. 
Uh, but yeah, it's it's a big one. Obviously, a big one for Neil because it it's the next step to the upper echelon, and for Thompson, he he wants to break out of that gatekeeper role that they have him in and start pushing for another title run. No, I'm with you there. I think that when I think about Jeff Neil, I just think um, the athleticism and the explosiveness. I mean, uh, I think that people are maybe underestimating his abilities when he gets close to you. He, like you said, he's very technical. He's done a great job. You know, I was watching some of his fights preparing for this. You're talking about, you know, guys in Mike Perry, Nico Price. Um, he did get, you know, dropped by Nico, but these are guys who tend to leave you a little busted up, win or lose. And he really did a good job of um, shutting down a bunch of guys, Frank Camacho also. I'm very impressed. I think that when you talk about the striking, though, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, you got to think about, like, does this guy have the durability? And does he have the, um, just, uh, I guess, the aggressive style? Because the fact is, you do have to make it a bit of a dirty fight to get the job done against a guy like Wonderboy. I do think that Jeff has the attributes that you need to get the job done. I know, obviously, he's the one... He's the B-side. He's the one with everything to gain because Thompson is such a much bigger name. But I just really like it from that standpoint. I'm with you there. I think uh, I said this. I've talked with people about it. I think that um, had uh, the Hamza fight not happened, I really thought that he was going to fight Leon Edwards' title eliminator. Both of them, you know, well, I guess Edwards has, but Thompson hasn't fought Kamaru Usman. Uh, Usman would have all has already fought uh, Masvidal and Covington. I feel like I'm sorry, but Wonder Boy, you are really right there, dude. I think that um, I'm. I'll be honest. I'm still shocked that the Edwards fight did not happen for him. So, yeah, you put all that together. This is still a great spot. I imagine Wonder Boy is very very ready for this fight. He's been training hard. He is aware of what could come next if he is dialed in and focused. So. I expect a great performance out of Thompson, for sure. Um, Farah, are you ready to make a prediction? Are you comfortable? I know you'd probably talk to more people than I do, so I don't know how you are with predictions. Um, well, we kind of post our, our picks. I used to hate doing this whole prediction thing until we had to do it at MMA Junkie, but um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm leaning Wonder Boy. I just think he is... Can he get caught? Sure. Uh, but I just think he's too slick of a striker. He's too experienced. He's proven that he can go 25 minutes with no issues whatsoever. Um, I do think he's going to have to weather a bit of an early storm. Um, he's going to have to fend off potentially some takedown attempts. I don't know if Jeff is going to stand and swing leather for 25 minutes. But I do think I, I'd say Thompson by decision. I think for Thompson, the layoff actually helps him the most. I think that, not that Jeff, ne Jeff Neal doesn't, but I think that with Thompson, I think that um, just some of the fights, those long ones, uh, just the schedule he's had over the years, I actually think not fighting for a while, I think that helps him with his durability. And I think that's going to be big because I expect, uh, stylistically, I just feel like he's just got that ability to control the distance against a guy like Neal. But I think more than that is that if it does get into a bit of a longer, dirtier fight, that the wear and tear is going to help out Thompson more than as Neil. Yes, he's probably feeling pressure too, not having been in a fight in a while. But that tends to get neutralized if you're eating all those shots at a distance, you know, like the way I expect Thompson to. So, 
Yeah, I got Thompson also. I'm feeling... I'm feeling a decision. I think that Neil is going to show up ready to win his first UFC main event, but, you know, it's just not going to go his way. I think he's going to just hang tough, but Thompson's going to outpoint him across the 25 minutes. So, yeah, that'll be a good one. Um, I We're not going to break it down, but I got to bring it up. Chito Vera versus Jose Aldo. That is just some good television. I am very excited to see that. I think that that's another... We're talking about another crossroads bout, um, definitely for Jose. Chito, I think if you beat Sean O'Malley and Jose back-to-back, that sets you up for a big 2021. Uh, do you have anything to add about those two? Yeah, I th- look, what I love about Chito is he's game to, to fight. He's game to throw down. So that's, this is like, don't want to jinx it, but I just almost feel like it's guaranteed fireworks. Because so, like... Jose Aldo is so experienced. He's so good. Um, I'm not ready to write him off. Uh, I feel like even in his losses, he's looked good and he's looked dangerous. So um, I expect a lot of like aggressive technical exchanges in the pocket between those guys. Marlon's got the the favorable, I guess, frame, um, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of uh, height. Aldo's got a decent reach. If I, I don't know. I have to check the stats on that one. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's going to be a great fight. And um, Mar- Chito's durable. Uh, Chito's durable as well, so that's going to factor in. Um, I don't know. In terms of, like, I think I lean Aldo just purely on his experience. Um, but, man, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't count Chito out. He's he's dangerous. Um, but, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm leaning uh, Aldo. For me, I think about that Pyotr Jan fight. Aldo was dialed in. I think about the fact that this is going to be 15 minutes, not 25, which I think really helps Aldo. And then the speed. I think that when you think about Chito just getting in there, biting down, he's obviously very uh, multifaceted. I don't think he gets enough credit for his jiu-jitsu. Um, but then when I think about it, when Jose Aldo gets going, you kind of get reminded why he was the guy, you know, I know it hasn't gone his way, you know, really well for a minute, but you know, you're reminded what he's capable of. And I think you really saw that with Peter Jan. If anything, I think that, you know, more time kind of gearing himself to be a Bantamweight has helped him. And, um, yeah, I think that if he comes out like the guy we saw in the title fight in July, he poses a lot of problems for Marlon, even with all the weapons. And like you said, uh, I think that he is going to be the bigger bantamweight in there, ironically, even though Jose was the former featherweight champion. So I think it's going to be a good one. Like you said, I don't see this one being boring in any way, no matter how you slice it. So I'm excited for it. Guys. That is it for our show. Farah Hanun, thank you so much for joining me. I can't say once again how much I appreciate it. I cannot just express to you publicly enough how much respect I have. It's like I'm talking about like the champion of my division. Like Her game is so good. She's got all these attributes that push me to be a better fighter. No, for real. You're really killing it. Congratulations on a great 2020. I know it was probably a rough year like everyone, but really the work you put out there, just bravo. Like really, you killed it this year. And I hope more people are telling you that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And uh, kudos to you as well. It's been a great year for you as well. I know you got to cover a lot of the the Vegas shows. So uh, definitely seeing a lot... uh, 
a lot of your work and your name out there this year uh, than, than before. So uh, congrats on a great year as well. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Guys, we'll be back next week. Natalie will be back. We'll have our holiday episode. We'll recap Saturday's fights. And of course, one of my favorite favorite segments all year, the gift guide for your favorite fighters. So definitely tune in. And guys, take care.